Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and morning were the first day. And so this continues on for seven more days, with God creating, calling something good, and that's a day. And the same thing happens in another day and another day until you get to the seventh where God rested, but it's still a day. So what do we do with that? Do we have to take it at literal face value? What about evolution? What if we do some research and find some really compelling theories? Do we have to just deny the Bible altogether? Well, let's jump into that. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Um, I'm going to be doing my best to try and answer a question that has presented itself quite often in Christian and church and even non-Christian circles, and that's can Christians believe in evolution? Maybe a sub-question to that is, if you're a Christian, do you have to deny evolution and believe in the six-day creation, as those that interpret Genesis chapter 1 literally do? So let's start there. Let's start with a literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to pose the counter-question first, which is, can you be a Christian and interpret Genesis chapter 1 literally? You know, I find that's not a question that's asked very much. But I think it's an important question because what if I asked, can you be a Christian and take Psalm 51 literally, which is a prayer that David wrote. It's a prayer of repentance after he committed his sin with Bathsheba. And David writes, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And I'm going to pick on this a little bit here, but is David asking God to draw him a bath so that his skin will literally be whiter than snow? Also, why would David want that? He would be kind of ghostly. Look, I feel like if we have to interpret Psalm 51 literally, then that really makes no sense. And then it kind of does make me want to not trust anything else the Bible says. But if we interpret Psalm 51 metaphorically, because it was written as a psalm, as a song, as a poem, then we understand that what David is talking about being washed whiter than snow is about his sin. He's talking about his spirit being washed whiter than snow about God's grace covering David's sin and cleansing him of it. Now, of course, you're going to object and say, well, Genesis 1 isn't a psalm, and that's correct. It's not a psalm. And listen, if you want to take it literal, that's fine. I don't think a literal or a non-literal interpretation of Genesis 1 is what keeps you from having salvation. It's not an essential issue. It is a non-essential issue, though. And it is one that comes with great debate and question and even stumbling for some. But I really believe, and I have Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Thomas Aquinas to back me up on this, that Genesis chapter 1 is not a literal account of what happened in creation. It's poetic. It's a song. As Bonhoeffer points out in his book Creation and Fall, even if it was literal, we'd have no way of knowing because none of us were there when it happened. But here's just a few extra kind of points why I think it shouldn't be taken as literal, but instead should be taken as song, the song of creation, which is a theme and a concept that C.S. Lewis drew from 
again and again and again from his Chronicles of Narnia to mere Christianity that God sunned creation into existence. And that's really the point that Genesis chapter 1 tries to drive home. But the first kind of glaring issue in Genesis chapter 1 that really kind of hinders me from taking this literal is that God made light and darkness before he made the sun or the earth and then called that a day. So how are we even defining day now? Because currently in 2021 on the planet earth, we define day as a 24 hour period or one full rotation of the earth on its orbit. And so if there's no sun and there's no earth, what's a day? And the other reason is that there is a, there's a rhythm, there's a cadence to Genesis chapter 1. So much so that I would even pose the question of, we don't actually know that everything was made in the order it was given in Genesis 1, though it could be interpreted as simply the order of creation, the natural order of things, as it were. Okay, so Genesis 1 is a song, right? But Genesis 2 and 3 kind of tell the tale again. So... Because there is an accounting of creation that follows the song, is it reasonable to then believe in a six-day creation? Well, yes and no. I think yes, if you only go so far as to reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3, as far as your creation narrative goes. I think yes, for some, and maybe most Christians that don't have an intellectual aptitude or even a desire to study evolutionary theory, to study science, to study creation, I think for them, believing in a literal six-day creation might even be a good thing. And I don't know, maybe it's just along the old idea that ignorance is actually sometimes bliss. But more to the point of today's actual episode, which is, what about evolution? And to that, we need to ask, well, what kind of evolution? Because as I study evolution, I realize that there are many different theories out there about evolution. For example, there's vitalism, there's catastrophism, there's theistic evolution, there's structuralism, there's orthogenesis, there's saltationism, there's mutationism, there's Lamarckism, and then there's genetic drift. And even within all of those theories I just mentioned, there are different branches and different trains of thought in those theories that break out. And so really, there's just a lot of different rabbit holes you can go down as far as theories of evolution go. But mainstream culture has kind of fed us only one theory, and it's not Darwinian evolution. What it actually is, and what it's been for probably the past 20 or 30 years now, and maybe even longer than that, I guess really ever since it's infiltrated the school system, as some would say, what it is, though, is neo-Darwinian evolution. You see, when Charles Darwin wrote Origin of the Species, he did so in a world that was full of political turmoil, in a world that was grasping for power. The Industrial Revolution was just on the cusp of changing the world. Empires and nations were rising and falling. And so what happened, much like someone who would write later, after Charles Darwin, Frederick Nietzsche, what happened to Charles Darwin was that his writing was twisted for political gain. Well, political and sociological gain. And so what happened was in the late 1800s, around the time that Nietzsche was living and writing, you had some philosophers, some politicians, some rulers, and some people just seeking their own gain, whether it be monetarily or power, taking parts of Origin of the Species and Charles Darwin's theory and twisting it for their own gain. And thus what comes out of it is neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory. And this theory really kind of began to define itself just as Darwinian evolution about 100 years after Charles Darwin wrote Origin of the Species. But it is the theory we're all familiar with. It's the theory that says, 
that life started from nothing, that the smallest amoeba or, or microbe began evolving, began experiencing genetic mutations, that survival of the fittest was the law that completely directed this form of evolution, but that it's all random, that we're simply here because of natural selection, because whatever cells and DNA within us, for some weird ungodly, and I do mean ungodly, because neo-Darwinian evolution must be formed on the premise that there is no God. But for some weird ungodly reason, our DNA felt the urge to fight, to struggle, to try to survive, even though when we eventually do die, there is nothing. And that's the theory we're all familiar with. That's the theory that Stephen Jay Gould, who I mentioned in the last episode, leaned on when he said that if you rewound the clock 500 million years and started it again, and you let evolution do its thing, continue its process, that when you get to the point we are right now, humans would not even exist. And he's right, if this neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory were to be true. But there are other theories. Simon Conway Morris, a uh, famous paleontologist, still alive uh, to this day currently, is a big proponent of a theory called process structuralism. And what's different here is, unlike Stephen Jay Gould, Morris would say, if you reround the clock, 500 million years, start it all over, let uh, evolution do its thing, run its course, you would have humans. And if not humans, you would have something very, 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 very close to humans that we would probably look at and say, yeah, that's a human. Process structuralism is defined in a way that says that there's a biological structuralism that objects to an exclusively Darwinian explanation of natural selection. It argues that other mechanisms also guide evolution. And it sometimes implies that these other mechanisms supersede selection altogether. So in other words, what that means is when you look at neo-Darwinian evolution and you say, oh, everything's random, it's all survival of the fittest. What you're not saying is there are no laws, that there are no structure to evolution. What you're instead saying is the only structure that matters is survival. And so if you're going to look at evolutionary theory, you just have to say, well, what other structures could there be besides just survival? Because we all die in the end anyway. Wouldn't a nihilistic or an existentialist viewpoint ultimately end evolution? Wouldn't it ultimately end the human species once everyone wakes up and says, oh, okay, well, there is nothing to the end of this life. There is no meaning to life. So what's the point of evolving? What's the point of continuing to live at all? It's absurd, as Albert Camus points out in his Myth of Sisyphus, right? All we're doing is rolling the boulder back up to watch it roll back down. And evolution is just the giant, longest lasting boulder of all of existence. It's the biggest joke of the cosmos, right? But what if there's another structure? What if there's another structure, a, a law that dictates how things evolve. But more than that, what if how things have evolved and are continuing to evolve doesn't just have a structure, doesn't just have laws that govern it, but also has a process, has an end point in mind. And just to throw a spicy little Christian question in there, what if God didn't just create in the past tense, but continues to create? I don't know about you, but I don't see many things appearing out of nowhere. I see a God who orchestrated and created literally everything and is in the finite details of DNA. And I think, I don't know, roll with me on this, but I think God might be big enough to utilize natural processes, natural structures that we have within DNA, within genetics, within biology. God, I don't know. He might be big enough to utilize some of that 
to continue doing his creating. I don't know, maybe I'm off base. (laughs) If you think so, send me an email. But back to process structuralism. So when we throw a theistic point of view on top of process structuralism, what we're not saying is that evolution isn't random. Everyone knows evolution's random. Anyone who's ever been around a baby knows that it's random, right? That the passing of genetics, that DNA, is random. That's why people, when they're around a baby, always say, oh, he has your eyes, or he has her nose, or he has his ears, or, you know, we we don't know. We, We couldn't look into the future and say, oh, your child will have these features. We know that there's a bit of randomness to the way we and other life forms are born and procreate. And so process structuralism doesn't take any of that away. But what it says is that in all of this randomness, there are going to be convergences. There are going to be structures that govern the way things can evolve and direct them as so. And this might even sound a little kind of cool because you can take, as I continue to present this, you can take the word structure or natural laws out and you can put God in there and it fits. But basically what we have is convergences, right? If we take the eye, and especially the human eye, and compare it to other animal eyes, we have divergence in the type of animals that have eyes, but when we take the human eye and all the receptors and all the complexity of it, you would think that in neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory, which is a mouthful to say, but in that theory, you would think that the human eye is the most unique eye in all of creation, that no other creature has an eye even close to that. But come on, you and I both know that that's not true, that other creatures have eyes, and some creatures have eyes that are even more advanced than humans. And we call that convergence. Or for, for another example, you can think about different types of species, different types of dogs or wolves, different types of marsupials, different types of reptiles that maybe at one point had a common ancestor and diverged. They started evolving separately from each other. But today we see types of species on completely different parts of the globe, different continents separated by thousands and thousands and thousands of miles, yet with a lot of the same features, with a lot of the same structures, with a lot of the same attributes and characteristics. And that's also called convergence. Because in a truly neo-Darwinian survival of the fittest divergence evolutionary theory, even if you have a common ancestor, place each creature on two different continents and the divergence should separate out almost any likeness from them. That, that, That convergence isn't a very likely thing to happen unless there's a structure, unless there's a natural law governing how things should operate in this world. And so can you be a Christian and believe in evolution? Yeah. Yeah, actually, I I think you can. I think that there's a lot of arguments out there that make a lot of sense. I think there's a lot more than I can cover here in a 20-minute podcast. But I think that even if we just look at this process structuralism theory, which is one that I, I like and I hope is true, but I still take Bonhoeffer's approach of saying, well, I wasn't there when creation happened. I don't know if it's a literal six days. I don't know, as some have even theorized, that maybe each day represents a thousand years or 10,000 years, that we can't actually take it as a literal day, but we should still take it as six different periods in time. I don't know if the Earth is only 10,000 years old. I doubt it. But I also don't know if the Earth is 500 million years old. It seems a little more reasonable. Um, I wasn't there. So I'm, I'm never going to, as a Christian, stamp my flag. Well, and I say never now, but... 
Who knows? Maybe someday. Maybe someday if we get more evidence. Anyway, I digress. At this point in time, I don't know how wise it is to absolutely stamp your flag and say, this is how God did it. To me, that kind of feels like you're putting God in a box. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't like to put God in a box. I don't like to put baby in a corner. But I do think that process structuralism sounds reasonable. I do think that if we're going to say God is a creative God, that God is a God that is entwined in every single detail of creation, every single cell, every single strand of DNA, you look and there's God's fingerprint. I like to say that because it lines up with the Bible. I think if we're going to say that, I think it's reasonable to say that perhaps God did in his intertwining, in his fingerprints on every strand of DNA, fingerprints on creation, perhaps God did cause in a structured way with an end goal in mind, creatures, us, to evolve over time. And as we wind down this podcast, that's another very important point. Back to the quote from Stephen Jay Gould and the quote from Morris of, what happens if you rewound the clock all the way back and started it over? Where would we be, right? Gould saying we'd have nothing like humans at all. Morris saying we would have humans or something almost identical to humans. The thing I like about the process structuralism theory, especially when taken from a theistic point of view, is that the end goal of evolution in process structuralism is humans. That humans are positioned because of their intellect, because of their volitional abilities, the uh, ability to reason, to logic, to think, to theorize about evolution and creation. Process structuralism puts humans as the end goal. Again, I don't know, I read Genesis 1 and I kind of think that that was God's end goal too. There was something about let us make man in our image. And then Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, which is the more, if, if you're going to take any chapter of Genesis between Genesis 1 and 2 and treat it as literal, Genesis 2 should probably be the more literal one and Genesis 1 should be the more uh, poetic one. I, I don't know, I mean, at least that's what just most scholars say. But Genesis chapter 2, in verse 7, it says, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into the nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So from dust to man, or you could say the dust evolved into man. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> I'm just making a joke. It's not a literal interpretation that I just gave you. But in a way, you can kind of see that, right? From dust we came and to dust we shall return, the Bible says. Even if you don't agree with any theory of evolution, I got to point out we evolved from dust and we're evolving back to dust. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, just uh, stare into the mirror for the next 20 years. Take notes, diligent notes. One day you will be dust again. Loosely, you can use the definition of evolution on that. <laughs> but I kid. The last point I want to make is something that Thomas Aquinas said. And I'm going to paraphrase him, not just quote him. But basically he said that God gave us the ability to reason, the gift of volition to think, to put two and two together, to have a logical view of the world. God is a God of truth. Not that the Bible is the only source of truth in the world, but if there's any truth in the world, it belongs to God. It's his truth, be that spiritual truth, be it historical truth, be it emotional truth, or be it scientific truth. And so Thomas Aquinas so wisely said that if your faith in God and the scientific truth you know contradict each other, one of those has a flaw in it. It doesn't mean that one is right and one is wrong. It means that you haven't reasoned through one of them enough. Maybe it's the science. Maybe it's the faith. I don't know. That's up for you to decide. But all I know is that if God's a God of truth, 
and one day we find out that evolution is true, that's God's truth. That's not Darwin's truth. It's definitely not any of the people that have ascribed a neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory's truth, because that one is more likely than not not true. I'm going to lean heavily on the neo-Darwinian theory evolution part not being true, but maybe process structuralism is. Maybe theistic evolution is. We didn't even talk about that one. Maybe vitalism is. Maybe catastrophism is. But it's an interesting point because most Christians that argued the six-day creation theory want atheists to submit to that truth, which they really think is true. And it might be. I'm not saying it's not. But the Christian life is completely a submission to truth. The skeptical life must also be a submission to truth which is why I think Christianity and skepticism line up a whole heck of a lot. But for real, though, that makes sense, right? If there is a truth, we must submit to it. Just to not submit to it is to fight against reality, to fight against the structure that God has given this world that we live in. And guess what? We live in it. So we might as well submit to what's true inside of it. And so to end here, if I can leave you with this, it's that we should have an open mind towards evolution. And we should have an open mind towards six-day creation as well, but we should have an open mind as to how God made everything. A mind open enough that if God were to reveal it to us, whatever it is, we would immediately submit to it. And maybe God will someday. I don't know, maybe you'll die and go to heaven. And and this is the first question you can ask God, as so many people say, when I go to heaven, I'm going to ask God this, this, and this, and this. Well, maybe you'll get that chance. And if God says, yeah, I know, evolution's true, what does that do to your heart? Do you balk at it? and say, how could those scientists be right? Are you prideful about it? Ah, I knew it! Those crazy fundamentalist Christians trying to shove six-day creation down all of our throats. Or can you see the beauty of a God who creates everything, who is intricately in all of the details, that whether things evolved or just appeared, they show with color and sound and light the splendor and the glory and the beauty of God. I don't know. But we're just about out of time. I'm probably a little bit over time right now. But let me know what you think. Let's continue this discussion. I think you can be a Christian and believe in evolution. I think you can be a Christian and not believe in evolution. Either way, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show.